This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area is going to feel almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a Twilight Doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a two throughout the evening. Hall of Famer John Miller, the longtime voice of the San Francisco Giants, is one of the game's best broadcasters and is one of my favorite storytellers. He was one of the first guests on this podcast back in season one and also holds the distinction of being the most downloaded episode in Lost Ballparks history. As great as he was the first time around, there were many ballparks that we just didn't have time to get to. Many stories left to tell. So John is back once again for the series finale. John Miller. When you began your career in 1974 as a member of the Oakland A's organization on the broadcast team, Yankee Stadium was under renovation. So the Yankees were playing their home games at Shea Stadium. Today, the Yankees held their first workout at the playpen of their intra-city rivals. It was appropriate that Bobby Mercer, Whitey Ford, and the rest had their road gray uniforms on, for they were not truly home, even though the famed pinstripes will be worn tomorrow. That must have felt a little odd for you, broadcasting an A's-Yankees game from the home of the Mets. I had never been to any of those ballparks before I got the job with the A's. So whether it was Yankee Stadium or Shea Stadium, it was a place I had never been. So I was just really excited to be in in New York, number one. Uh, We got there on a Sunday night from Baltimore after a day game. And I went out with one of our coaches, Irv Norton, who had played for the Yankees in the 50s. So he found out it was going to be my first time in New York, and he invited me to meet him and a friend of his that were going to have some uh, dinner at the the stage deli across the street from our hotel in Midtown. And so I did and and met big Julie, Julie Isaacs, who was a guy in the garment workers union, I guess, in New York. And he seemed like a guy out of central casting. He looked and sounded just like a guy who would be named Big Julie. <laughs> and he had a couple of, couple of young models were with him, and uh, it was me and Irv Noren and, and Big Julie. Uh, I later read about Big Julie in Tony Kubek's book about the 1961 season, which is a great read about the Maris and Mattel season, the year that Maris had 61 home runs. And Julie Isaacs was a guy who was very close to both of them. He was a good friend of both of them. He helped find them a place to live, and they were actually roommates that season until the summertime when their families arrived in town. But he picked them up at the airport when the Yankees team charter arrived from Florida and then took them to the apartment where they were going to live and also with the car that he had gotten for them. So he was a real help to those guys. And he was often there when the team would come home from road trips all season long. And I didn't find this out until I read Tony's book all those years later, which was kind of cool to find all of that out. Yeah. I, I always, always remember Big Judy giving me a lot of tips on things to do in New York City and Manhattan and whatnot. And then, you know, we'd had some laughs and we had a fun night. And he says, John, I really, I really like you. And if anybody gives you any trouble in this town, you let Big Julie know about it. And I was like, <laughs> well, I'm definitely not going to do that when, no matter what happens to me. But uh, uh, turned out he was just kind of a big puppy dog. And yeah. uh, uh, it was really 
kind of fun finding out later on who he really was. Right. As uh, we left that the stage deli and then uh, Irv Norton and I walked around Midtown Manhattan because he actually was a guy who roomed with Mickey Mantle, a very young Mickey Mantle in the, the 50s. And, and they did the same thing. He took me to the, I think it was called the Edison Hotel, but it is still there and kind of an art deco layout in, in the lobby and whatnot. And that's where they roomed together. And he showed me how they done some of the things that you know, I had read about in Jim Bounton's book, you know, Ball Four, about right. how uh, Mickey Mantle, you know, they'd get a couple of those horse carriages and at four o'clock in the morning, they'd go racing down Fifth Avenue. <laughs> and uh, and he did all of that with the Mick. And this was 1974. This was really before Ball Four even came out. So this, right. I was hearing about that long before all of that had become sort of a legendary part of the uh, the New York and Mickey Mantle story. When you got to the uh, ballpark for the first time to Shea, what did you think of Shea Stadium? How would you uh, how would you best describe it in that 1974 configuration? The cool thing for me about getting to Shea Stadium was, uh, and I was excited no matter what ballpark I was in, but to, to get into this uh, New York ballpark, just a big, large ballpark, the bigger than most of the other ones that we had been to and would go to that year. But then to hear Bob Shepard. Good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, who's the voice of Yankee Stadium, the quintessential voice of Yankee Stadium, there with the Yankees. And the really cool thing was, and I had heard Bob Shepard in, in the background. It always was so distinctive sounding. I remember hearing him on the in the background on a game of the week, and I, I think it was Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese doing the game. It was a Red Sox-Yankees game, and Yastrzemski and Canigliaro were young, rising stars of the Red Sox, and Dizzy Dean had a difficult time pronouncing their names, you know, Canigliario and uh, Carl Yastrzemski and, uh, <laughs> and whatnot. But uh, they were uh, getting ready to, you know, we'll come back with the lineups and the Yankees and Red Sox game. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. And then in the two, three seconds before NBC went to their break, I heard number 10, Tony Kubek, shortstop, shortstop, number 10. And I heard the whole thing, and he was announcing the lineups before the game. And, and I thought, wow, that's, that's so impressive. There was just something about the way he did it that was so different and so unique among all public address announcers. In Candlestick, we had a, a guy with a great voice named Jeff Carter, and I always thought he was great. And Dodger Stadium, they had uh, John Ramsey, who was another guy very distinctive and very different. But there was something about Bob Shepard, who was a, a speech professor at St. John's, and he just had, and and, you know, and, and, and the sound system had a certain uh, sound to it at Shea Stadium. It was like one big speaker system out in center field for the whole ballpark. And Bob just very loud way was filling up this, this space. But I always remember that the way he said hello, you know, good afternoon uh, at Shea Stadium was a little bit different than years later when they moved back into Yankee Stadium. And I went there for the, the first time because he would just say, you know, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, welcome to Yankee Stadium. You know, and you would all, and the fans would always cheer just as right, something right. as as mundane as him just saying, welcome to the, welcome to the ballpark. Uh, but they, they were cheering Bob Shepard, I realized as time went on. Because they just loved to hear him. They really knew they were in this great ballpark with all the history and a place they loved to be. And uh, that's why Bob was such an integral part of all of that. And I think is central to any understanding of what Yankee fans loved about going to to that ballpark. But 
At Shea Stadium, Bob did it a little bit differently. And I thought it was sort of a, in a small way, sort of, it was ingenious. He'd, he'd come on, he'd say, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, the Yankees welcome you to Shea Stadium. <laughs> you know, not welcome to Shea Stadium, but right. the Yankees welcome you to Shea Stadium. And uh, so that, that was just the way he did it. It was a little bit of a different thing and still made the Yankees central to the whole thing. And made it seem, I'm sure, like, a, and I wasn't there for a Mets game and never was for many, many years to come because I was always in the American League. But I think Bob's presence at Shea Stadium, even though it was the same ballpark, whether the Yankees were there or the Mets were there, made it a whole different experience. Oh, for uh, sure. Anyway, so that was part of the thing that I remember about Shea. And I, I remember the second time we went back uh, in the summer and the A's played a four-game series, including a Sunday doubleheader. And they swept the Sunday doubleheader from the Yankees. And Mets fans who were still left by the end of that second game were a little surly, a little unhappy. And, and maybe they were, maybe the ones that were near us were a little inebriated. But at Shea Stadium, the, the broadcast booth was not that high up above, I guess it was the second deck or the third deck, whichever one it was, where the mezzanine was. And that's where the booths were and the press box and everything else. So we had a microphone that was hanging out of the booth to get the crowd noise, and which was fairly common. That's the way it was done at the time. And all of a sudden, we're, we're wrapping up our post-game show and getting ready to leave and head down to the bus and go to the airport for the, the flight to wherever the A's were going next. And all of a sudden, this, this cable started being pulled, kind of sweeping across the desk and knocking out some of the other electronics. Somebody down below had gotten up on a chair and gotten a hold of that crowd mic and decided they wanted it <laughs> and, and they were pulling on it. So, uh, so we really quickly wrapped it up and went to our commercial break. And then the engineer came down and he started screaming at those people and asking for ballpark security to help them out and, and whatnot. So, right. uh, you know, I, I just remember that the, the fans were unhappy and they were throwing things down onto the field after the A's had swept that doubleheader. In 1978, John, you joined the Texas Rangers broadcast team with home games at Arlington Stadium, uh, a ballpark that was at one point nicknamed the human frying pan for its complete lack of shade. Even for a night game, temperatures would routinely, I think, be hovering around 100 degrees at 7 p.m. 97 degrees tonight at Arlington Stadium at game time. The wind coming out of the south to southeast at 20 miles per hour. And we've got a pretty good crowd on hand tonight. Other than the oppressive heat, what do you remember about Arlington Stadium? So my first game at Arlington Stadium was the first game that I ever broadcast, a regular season game in the big leagues in 1974. With Oakland, uh, they, after spring training, went to Texas to open the season. And so I just remember not what an odd ballpark it was, but... Wow, the, the sounds in a big league ballpark and a big league game are so much different than where we were in spring training, where it, you know the A's used to play at a place called Rendezvous Park in Mesa, Arizona, an old wooden ballpark that was, I think, probably a, a WPA project from the 30s. And it was just like an old-time ballpark that now when you see pictures of it, it's hard to believe that something like that even existed. Right. And, you know, the A's, they play a weekday afternoon game in Mesa. And I remember that, you know, the first big league game I ever did was at Rendezvous Park. They played the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers played on the other side of the valley. Now it's near where Peoria is, where the Padres and Mariners play. 
but they were in a place called Sun City, which was a, a big retirement community, which ironically was uh, built by, I guess, Del Webb and Dan Topping. The owners of the Yankees had started this uh, retirement community, and they had a ballpark over there. And part of the experience of living there was uh, you got a golf cart to get around the community, including there were a place for the ballparks to park and watch the game right from your golf cart at the uh, Sun City ballpark where the Brewers were playing. So uh, so they had come across the valley to Rendezvous Park, and I was at a dinner with uh, Robin Yount was there and uh, Bob Euchre, Hank Aaron. It was at uh, Bud Seelig's house in Scottsdale just, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I was talking to Robin Yount, and I told him, you know, the first game I ever did, I was 22 years old, was an exhibition game against the Brewers. And it was maybe the third game of that spring training Cactus League schedule. And you played in it. So the first game I ever did, you played in. And he said, you know, I believe, and I says, I can't say for sure, but I believe that's probably the first time I ever played in a game. Uh, we had a shortstop named Tim Johnson. He was the regular. And because we had the, the drive across the valley, a lot of the regulars didn't have to go that day. That was a, a day off. So that's why I got sent over there and I played that day. And I said, well, whether that's an actual fact or not, I'm going with that story from now on. So, <laughs> Robin Yount, a Hall of Famer. So I did his first, because Robin Yount was 18 years old when he played that game. Right. So I do remember uh, specifically that he was in the game. And so that was kind of cool to to talk to him about that. And then we had sort of that, that shared memory of it. Uh, it was kind of a first for both of us at the same time. So, but then we opened the season in Arlington, Texas, the A's playing the Rangers, the A's were the two time defending world champions. So there was a good crowd because it was opening night and catfish hunter pitched for the A's. But I just remember the, the experience of hearing the public address announcer that that sounded so big time and so professional. I think it was the third game of that series, that opening series in 1974 at Arlington Stadium where Reggie Jackson hit a couple home runs. And Yeah, I had to go down and do an interview for the, our postgame show. And so I asked Reggie if he'll do it uh, with me for our postgame show. And we gave some kind of a gift certificate to guys for an electronic store near the ballpark in Oakland. And then we had to go into this little camera well adjacent to the dugout behind the on-deck circle. That's where the microphone was and the earphones and all this kind of stuff so that Monty Moore from the booth could give me the cue because it was a live interview. And so Reggie had to climb with me into this uh, little camera well. And, you know, here he just had this great game and a couple of homers, a lot of RBIs. And you're making him you're making him jump through this obstacle course. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, I've got him in this little place that's not that hospitable. And But he did it. And that was the first time I ever interviewed Reggie, the first of many, many times. And I realized, wow, he he is just so good at this. He's probably too good for his own good, because I can think of a lot of different things I want to ask him about this. And I want to keep talking to him because all of his answers are just so thorough. And so interesting and so entertaining. So, yeah. But anyways, those are the, the things I remember about Arlington Stadium. And they didn't have the upper deck yet. Right. When I got back there and actually did the Rangers games starting in 78, that was the first year that, that they had finished putting in the upper deck, which added maybe 5,000 more seats to what they'd had. The oddity of that ballpark, there not only was no shade in this very hot and uh, sunny atmosphere, but of the 35,000 seats that they had initially when they increased the capacity to get the big league field, because it had been a minor league ballpark. And the, the main way that they increased the capacity was in the bleachers around the outfield. 
And they had 38 rows of bleachers that went from one side to the other, from one foul pole to the other, and overlapped each foul pole. And there were 18,000 seats just in the bleachers out of the 35,000 total. You know, they'd added some where they could in the bowl itself between the foul poles, past the bases and behind home plate and whatnot. By 78, when I got there to do the Rangers games, they had added the upper deck, which, you know, it was a partial upper deck and it added another five, 6,000 seats. So now the capacity was 40, 41,000. And that really made a huge difference just in making it look like a, an actual big league ballpark. You know, big league ballparks, other than Fenway, they had upper decks, but not that ballpark in Arlington. But it also had the big scoreboard in left field, which was a signature of the old Arlington Stadium, a map of Texas, and where they showed the balls and strikes and the outs and the number of the uh, the hitter who was batting and maybe the lineups uh, with all the numbers and positions and whatnot, all within that map of the state of Texas. And then there was a banner part of the scoreboard to the left of the state of Texas map uh, in which you had the uh, the line score, the inning by inning score. That was probably the most cool thing about that ballpark. The uh, Milwaukee Braves, John, played at County Stadium from 53 to 65. And the Brewers, who we talked about earlier, played there from 1970 to 2000. Late in the season in 1986, you were there broadcasting an Orioles-Brewers game. Very pleasant. Good afternoon, everyone, wherever you may be. When with two out in the ninth inning, John Shelby came to bat for the Orioles. And here is John Shelby. What do you remember about that moment? Well, I remember that... Ted Higuera is a very talented left-hander, and he was the Brewers' ace pitcher on some really good Brewers teams. And he had 19 wins, and he was from Mexico, and only one pitcher born in Mexico had ever won 20 games in the big leagues, and that was Fernando Valenzuela. And Fernando had just won his 20th game within a few days of that. So the game was was not a close game. Oakland was behind, I don't know, 8-1 to one or 8-3 to three or whatever the score was ninth inning and Shelby came up with Rick Dempsey on deck. And I remember in that ninth inning thinking the only thing we've really got going for our broadcast here, which is we're sending it back to Baltimore is Ted Higuera's rendezvous with history about to become the second Mexican born major league pitcher ever to win 20 games. The first to do it in an American league ballpark. So I was trying to hang my hat on holding on to what audience we had left for this blowout game that was not a good one for the Orioles and try to do justice to this big moment for Higuera, a little bit of Major League Baseball history, and a proud moment for him, I'm sure, being from Mexico and being only the second player from there ever to to have that kind of an, an achievement. So while Shelby's up and I'm trying to do justice to the whole thing, Shelby hits a foul ball back toward the booth at County Stadium. And one of the peculiarities about the visiting broadcast booth, there there were two windows that you had to lift up and there was a pole in between the two windows that separated the two windows. Why you would build it that way, I I have no idea, but that's the way they built it there. So ordinarily, if there's a foul ball that comes back to your booth, you try to catch it because you get a big cheer from the fans. Right. Hey, nice going. And then you have people shouting at you. They want you to toss the ball to them. And so then you you get the cheer for catching the ball. And then you toss the ball down into the stands and get another cheer. Like, hey, what a good guy he is. And, you know, (laughs) whatnot. But now I'm trying to do justice to the moment and the history. And I don't want to have this distraction. And I don't want to start yucking it up with two strikes and two down in the ninth inning with him about to win his 20th game. 
So I just, as the ball's coming back toward the booth, I just lean to my right and don't say a word about it to just get out of the way because it looks like it's going to land in the booth. Well, as I lean to my right, you know, I'm, I'm just saying swings and he fouls it uh, back uh, near us. Uh, strike two. The ball hits that little pole between the two windows and ricochets right off my forehead. <laughs> now I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and I, I, I get, I'm all dizzy and my left eye tears up and I'm like, wow, am I, am I hurt? Am I going to pass out? What's, what's going on? Cause my head kind of gone numb and what now do I have a concussion? And uh, meanwhile, my partner's looking at me, he kind of starts laughing because I, uh, I found out later I had the, the seams of that baseball were now showing the outline of those seams from the baseball were showing on my forehead. Oh my gosh. And so now I'm just still focused. I have this notion though. I just want to stay focused on the game, but I'm so out of it now. Shelby hits the next pitch on one hop back to the who throws him out at first and the game's over and he's got his 20th win. And instead of some big finish, I describe, you know, Shelby, one hopper back to Higuera, and he throws him out at first. And now I, I look down to the Orioles on deck circle where Dempsey was going to be coming up, and I see him turn and head back to the dugout, and now I'm waiting to see who's going to come up and pinch hit for him. And then it occurs to me that nobody's coming out of the dugout. In fact, everybody's leaving the field and <laughs> heading back to their respective dugouts, and it occurs to me that, oh, the game's over. <laughs> So my big call, my big finish, after I get beamed by this foul ball, is back to Higuera. He throws him out at first. And uh, that is the end of the game. The Brewers have won it. We'll be back with the totals after this. And that was it. That was my big finish, you know, so. <laughs> and wow. I'm probably lucky that I was able even to get that out. So Right. You could have been on the uh, floor unconscious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I thought, well, let that be a lesson to you. I was just trying to get out of the way of that foul ball and it almost killed me. What do you remember, John, about Municipal Stadium in Cleveland? That's the ballpark of my youth. That's where I grew up, up there on Lake Erie. And uh, I know it wasn't the nicest ballpark. It was cavernous for sure. But what are your memories of, of Cleveland Municipal Stadium? The uh, Cleveland ballpark. Uh, and we went there early in the year. The, the A's played a couple of games there in 74. So that was my first experience of it. And it was just really brutally cold. And we played two afternoon games, and probably like a, a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And the official paid attendance for each game was about 1,400, you know, 1,400. Right. And, uh, Gaylord Perry pitched the first game for Cleveland. And, you know, I've grown up with Gaylord Perry, who – was a, a star pitcher for the Giants. And so I knew a lot about him and I was excited to do a game that he was pitching. And he, he went on that year. It was an era where the starting pitchers pitched every fourth day. And very often the best ones completed the games they started. And Gaylord that year pitched well over 300 innings and he had 40 decisions. Uh, not only did he make 40 starts and pitch every fourth day, he had 40 decisions. Yeah, I think he had 24 wins and 16 losses for a, a very bad team, except when Gaylord pitched. So he shut down the A's, and then he did the post-game interview with me. And it was cold. I mean, it was in the 30s. And Gaylord, you know, and all those years in the Bay Area, maybe that's why he did it. But he could have blown me off and said, I can't do it, kid. Sorry. Because it's not only cold out, but you know, then he has to cross the field because we had to go to the Oakland dugout. That's where our microphone and the the earphones were. 
so we had to go over there. They did have a heater under the bench in the dugout over there. So, so he went over there with me and, and did the interview. So I was forever grateful to Gaylord. But that's what I remember is just how brutally cold it was. And you, you spent so much time just trying to keep your hands warm. It was April and we'd, we'd been in spring training where it was nice and warm. We'd been at the Coliseum in Oakland where it was, it was pretty nice. And, uh, and now we're in Cleveland where it's in the 30s and just brutally cold in this empty ballpark. And we, we talked about the conditions a lot, what the players were having to go through. And at one point, down in the bullpen, you know, they had these big uh, barrels to put the trash. And they started a fire in the barrel out there for all the guys out in the bullpen, the right field line, to keep their hands warm, you know, so... And uh, so we remember seeing that there was a picture in the paper the next day of that, you know, illustrating how brutally cold it had been. And we were happy about that, Monty Moore and I, because we thought, well, this underscores the story that we were telling. We hope it's in the Bay Area papers as well, because uh, that's the the picture we were trying to paint of of what was going on. But anyway, so I just remember how impressive that ballpark was, the size of it. And the, the, the huge section of bleachers in the outfield where nobody was except this guy with his drum, you know, who kept doing the tom-tom beat or what. They'd just go on and on and on. The whole game, it was like the, the soundtrack of the, of the game. And you'd hear this echoing, see, this, this vast cavernous ballpark with nobody there. But the other part that was great that uh, I always was made me remember that ballpark fondly was the broadcast booths were so close to home plate, so close to the action. And uh, the only place that you were closer to the action from the broadcast booth than in Cleveland was Tiger Stadium in Detroit, where you were right in the backstop. And in Cleveland, you were not that far removed. I think the backstop was further from home plate in that Cleveland ballpark than maybe in Detroit was made a, a little bit further separated. But you had to walk through the stands and uh, up some steps to this, uh, it was like a bridge that went over the lower deck of the seats to access the broadcast area. And that's how you got there. And there was, you know, the home broadcast booth and the home TV booth and then the visiting radio and TV booth. So there are maybe four booths up there, maybe a spot where the official scorer could sit. But just back behind that was a little small little snack bar. And during the game, you could get a cup of coffee or a Coca-Cola or a hot dog. And they had the, uh, the special brown mustard that was sort of endemic to uh, getting a hot dog at the uh, Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Right. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's the best mustard I ever had. And uh, so I, I, I just remembered I, couldn't, I really couldn't get enough of those hot dogs with that great special <laughs> brown mustard. Anyway, so that was the, what was cool about going to Cleveland. Plus, you know, the Cleveland, there was all this history. You know, Bob Feller had played there and, and Larry Doby and so many great players and some great teams, one of the, the great American League teams of all time. The World Series story of 1954 starts on this day of September 21, when a quarter of a million baseball fans welcomed the Indians home after the pennant clincher in Detroit. In 54, a team that had won 111 games, which for a long time was the all-time American League record for wins. And that was in a 154 games season. So I just remember that there was all that history. And that's what I really enjoyed about, you know, that ballpark and Tiger Stadium and, and some of those ballparks. And, you know, and I had missed Yankee Stadium when I first started. And Shea Stadium didn't have anywhere close to that kind of history uh, at that time. So uh, that was, for me, was one of the great things about a real treat going there. 
John, you once said that the best part of any trip to the ballpark is the people that you meet. I wonder if that was the case when you broadcast from some of those so-called cookie cutters of the 1970s. I mean, some would say that there was not a lot to distinguish between Bush Stadium, Three Rivers, Fulton County, the Vet, and Riverfront in Cincinnati. But perhaps there was a character or two at one of those stadiums that stands out to you and made your trip to that particular stadium memorable for you. Those ballparks were primarily National League ballparks. So I really never went into those ballparks uh, for a long, long time until I started doing the ESPN Sunday Night Baseball in 1990. And then by that time, those ballparks had been around for a while. So that, that was part of what was a, a little bit different for me was just that we weren't going there. And my first year in Baltimore, uh, the Orioles won the pennant in 1983, and then they played the Phillies in the World Series. So that was the first time that I'd been to Veteran Stadium was for that World Series. And it was impressive. I mean, the vet was huge, and it was a bowl. All of these seats and the three decks, and it was very similar to Shea Stadium, except that the upper deck and whatnot went all the way around the outfield, unlike Shea Stadium. And they all kind of looked so much the same. And Three Rivers Stadium looked pretty much the same as Riverfront Stadium, Bush Stadium. And Bush Stadium uh, is the one that did something different Ultimately, not at first, but ultimately, by the time I got to the Giants and was going to these National League ballparks regularly, not just occasionally like with Sunday Night Baseball, but, you know, they had dressed up that ballpark and they put scoreboards up in the upper deck. And of all those cookie cutter, symmetrical, multi-purpose ballparks, that was the one uh, because the, the Cardinals football team had left and gone to Phoenix. The Cardinals turned Bush Stadium into baseball only ballpark. And it gave it a, a much more of a baseball feel and a much different feel than those other parks. You had the arches too, you know, surrounding the top of the stadium that made it unique. Yeah, it had a, a different vibe to it because of the architecture. It wasn't merely this this big round ballpark that it was a multi-purpose symmetrical ballpark. And you could see the gateway arch, the, the real thing outside the ballpark, at least when you were up in the booth. Uh, you could see it. So I kind of liked that. And then the seats were red. And the other part was on a hot, humid day, and they had a lot of them. There was no wind. When you talk to the players who played, it was miserable because there was no wind on the field. Up above, there could be some wind that might affect a fly ball and knock a ball down or push a ball. But on the field itself, there was no such thing. It just never got down to field level. And I don't know if that was the same in all those other ballparks, but that was the one where uh, the players would really talk about it and comment about it. Right after the, the park opened, they had the All-Star game there. Another great structure in St. Louis's new Civic Center development is Bush Memorial Stadium, scene of baseball's 37th annual All-Star game. And it was brutal. There were some players who had heat prostration that day because it was so hot. And uh, one of the, the scenes that uh, Sandy Koufax once told me about uh, pitching in the All-Star game that first year that that park was open. And he had pitched on the Sunday at Candlestick Park. And because it was always so cold and windy and foggy and whatnot, the Dodgers had brought those big overcoats that you know you could wear in the dugout or in the bullpen or whatever to try to stay warm at Candlestick for a night game. And so then he had come to St. Louis from San Francisco, and in his equipment bag was that big overcoat. Koufax went through this uh, tunnel from the, uh, the home clubhouse because they were in the National League ballpark. That's where they were dressing. And he brought that big coat with him uh, out to the bullpen. So he was going to warm up in the bullpen before the game. And when he got there, 
just before he walked out into the bullpen, he put on that big coat. Now, here it is. It's 100 degrees and humid. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hot as hell. And he shows up in the bullpen wearing this gigantic overcoat with the hoodie, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So he got the laugh. He he had his sight gag and whatnot. He got a good laugh for it. And, you know, quickly took it off. And the heat was so unbearable. But uh, Hey, John, I'm curious, by the way, do you still have an egg timer in the booth with you? We both have read uh, Red Barber's great book, Rhubarb in the Catbird Seat. Or maybe you got the idea to have an egg timer, and it seems like at one point or another you had the egg timer in, in the booth. Do you still have one or no? Yeah, I still have one there, and uh, I gave one of them away earlier this year. One of the young broadcasters with the Baltimore Orioles, and I had taken these guys out to lunch and whatnot, and uh, I wanted to meet them and, and talk to them. They were Baltimore guys. You know, they were asking me for advice, and I just was trying to underscore the, the importance of trying to make sure you give the score all the time and repeatedly give the score so that people tuning in can very in short order get the score. And now they'll be with you once they know what the score is. Now, if you have a a story with a laugh or an anecdote or whatever, then they'll be right with you as long as they know what the score is. But until they know that, and if it goes a while before they know that, now they're agitated, they're irritated with you. What the hell is the score? Why didn't he ever get the score? And, uh, you know, you want those people with you. You want them on your side. You don't want them mad at you. And I was telling him about the, the Red Barber thing. Advise him to look for that, that book, The Rhubarb and the Catbird Seat, his autobiography. They saw the little egg timer that I had in the booth. So I, I gave it to one of the guys and said, well, here, take it and uh, use it. it. It could be handy. So, uh, and I, I don't know, I had two or three of them in the booth, so I still have one in there. But uh, That's great. And, and Ernie Harwell used to say, he, he saw the egg timer years ago. And it might have been when I was back in the big leagues with Texas in 78. He says, oh, you, you've got the Red Barber thing going there. You use that. Uh, I said, yeah, yeah, I, I read that book. And he said, uh, is it two and a half minutes, three, three minutes? What, what, how long does it take? And I said, well, I'm not sure. I just know that before this sand runs through, I want to give the score and turn it over and start it again. And uh, he says, that's a good idea. Very good. He says, I try to give the score at least once every 60 seconds. California picked up two in the second. They laid the Tigers 2 nothing, with the Tigers trying to get back in the second inning. And I remember saying, well, doesn't that feel like that's almost all you're doing? And he says, well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, even if it is all you're doing, you need to give that score. That's the service you're trying to provide. And uh, we all want to believe that people tune into the beginning of the broadcast and stay with you the whole day. But the reality is different. The reality is that at any given moment, a majority of the people tuned in may have just tuned in within the last 60 seconds. And he wanted to be mindful of that and give them the score. And I remember years later when Ernie, they had announced that he was not going to be coming back and people in the Detroit were so upset. I wasn't real happy about it. He's been part of Tiger baseball as long as I can remember. Grew up with the radio beside the bed there and listening to him. The former football coach at... Uh, yeah, Bo Schembechler. Bo Schembechler. Yeah, he, for whatever reason, he decided that they were going to get rid of Ernie, which was you know, a monumental mistake. Yeah. So the two newspapers there, the Detroit Free Press and the, I don't know, the other one, the Detroit News or whatever it was, they both had special sections about Ernie late in that year when we were in town and where they had invited people to write in their favorite Ernie memories. And these sections, uh, I, I just poured through them where they all thought of Ernie as a member of the family and with love and affection. And so many of their memories were of shared moments between 
fathers and sons or parent and, and the child uh, sharing the Tigers broadcast with Ernie giving the game between these generations. And I remember thinking that giving the score every 60 seconds it starts there. Ernie was a genius of the medium and thinking that this is a service that people tune in and they need the score, number one. And he gave them the score in short order. If you just happened to tune in right after he'd given the score, you were still going to get that score in less than a minute. And then with each hitter that came up, a recap of that hitter's day. And Rusty Staub will be the batter. Rusty struck out his first time at bat. Just constantly recapping and constantly bringing the audience up to speed on what was going on. And I thought he looked at it because Ernie was a genius of the medium, but also very humble. And he said, how can I best serve the needs of our listeners? And that's the way he looked at it, he providing that service. And uh, that always resonated with me. And, and that's the first thing I thought of when I read all of these affectionate remembrances of Ernie and the things they loved about him as a broadcaster. Yeah, Ernie really was. He really was one of the best. John Miller, thank you so much for the time. Maybe the next time you're in San Diego, we could play a little baseball stratomatic. Oh. What, what, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm not as good as Cal Ripken Jr. That's a story for another day, but, uh, but I would love to play. <laughs> thank you, John. It's been fun. My pleasure, and uh, always enjoyed uh, talking some ball. All the best. For someone like me, who spent every Sunday night in front of the TV watching John Miller and Joe Morgan do Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN, that was, once again, uh, a real thrill for me. And it has been an honor hosting this podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and for all the kind emails and messages. For those of you who have left ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple. Thank you too. This podcast is 100% for you and would not have happened without your support and encouragement. There are so many folks I'd love to thank. Steve Nelson, Kevin Presley, John Maroon, Michael Ortman, Andy Strasberg, Bob Costas, Bob Lee, Robbie Inkmakowski, uh, Marty Brenneman, Nancy Faust, Janet Marie Smith, Charlie Steiner for his kind words and encouragement, uh, Fred Lynn for the same. Carl Erskine from the 1955 Brooklyn Dodgers for agreeing to be the uh, the first guest on this podcast way back when, before anyone even knew what this podcast was. Sandy Koufax for leaving me a message on my voicemail uh, that he wouldn't be able to do the podcast. I mean, yes, it was a no from Sandy, but how many people can say they have Sandy Koufax and their saved voicemail messages? So thank you, Sandy. And to my wife and kids, thank you for putting up with all of my ballpark stories told repeatedly at dinner. My kids may be the only kids in America who can tell you who played at Forbes Field and the Polo Grounds, Shy Park, and Ebbets Field, and it makes this dad proud. To the producers of the Lost Ballparks podcast, your weekly support made each episode possible. You are caretakers of baseball history, and I am grateful for each one of you. Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra, Manny Zavlakis, Mike Lipinski, Ryan Beard, Riggs Buckingham, Kyle Schmidt, Alex Kemp, and John Carter. Once again, thank you for listening to the Lost Ballparks podcast.